We're thinking about the next decade of investing. Global supply chains around energy, technology, even financial systems are changing with actionable ideas for investors. Here's what matters. Live from New York City, I'm Lauren Goodwin, and this is Market Matters from New York Life Investments. In this podcast, we bring you the best insights from across the New York Life Investments platform because we believe that by sharing perspectives and engaging with you, our listeners, we can all become better investors. Welcome, everyone. It's the week of June 5th, 2023, and today the gang is all here for a very special sneak peek into our new flagship research around megatrends. In our day-to-day, our team of myself, Julia Herman, and Michael Legalbo, we look at current data and look into the history that can help explain it. But just as frequently, we're looking into the future and being able to do some really big picture thinking in this way is a privilege in this business. So thank you to Julia and Mike for coming on to the program today to help me unpack our latest piece of research. Happy to be here. Hi, hi. So it's standard practice for long-term investors to think about long-term trends, themes that while slow moving and often hard to identify in the moment, have the potential to change the landscape for investment, consumption, even policy for decades to come. But the future of the economy doesn't always mean waiting around for investors, at least where their investment strategy is concerned. Being ahead of the curve on spotting and interpreting global megatrends can help get businesses and investors an edge. And for us, the most urgent megatrend with the most actionable investment insights has to do with de-globalization, or as we'll talk about it today, re-globalization. You've likely heard a lot about de-globalization or the expectation that international ties will fray, led by the U.S.-China rivalry and exacerbated by other geopolitical tensions. And importantly, that the pandemic or Russia's invasion of Ukraine have brought more attention to global supply chains. After 20 plus years of focusing on cost efficiency in the global economy, access and security of global supply chains are looking more important. A worldview is developing, which suggests that this focus on resilience or self-reliance will mean that countries will go it alone, hence de-globalization. Proponents of this view are right to highlight that this increased focus on resource scarcity and a widening definition of national security is going to prompt countries to turn more toward self-reliance when it comes to the most important supply chains. We focused our analysis on three of the world's most critical and sensitive supply chains, energy, tech, and financing. In energy, we're focused on the newfound push for energy independence in tandem with the green transition. In tech, we're talking mostly about the semiconductor or computer chip supply chain. And when it comes to financing, we have to talk about the future of the U.S. and dollar dominance. And when we started to analyze the potential impacts of deglobalization on energy, tech, and financing, we found that the deglobalization concept ran into some roadblocks. Namely, that true deglobalization, the true decoupling of these critical supply chains, to us seems impractical to the point of being impossible. It's only been a couple of months since U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said, in the 21st century, no country in isolation can create a strong and sustainable economy for its people on its own. And Julia's right. The term deglobalization only scratches the surface of this complex trend. Instead, that's why we think reglobalization is likely to happen as countries, yes, focus on resilience of their supply chains, but also, yes, 
have to rebuild and renegotiate how they do things globally. So this is central to our thesis in this research. And so we're going to take each of the three supply chains that Mike highlighted one by one and share our thoughts. First, is energy independence or a green transition not possible, Julia? Well, yes, they are. But accomplishing a green transition on an individual country basis is really not, in our view. And this is because, as it stands today, there might not be enough raw materials on Earth to achieve a green transition with the current technology and processes that we have. So this is an area that doesn't just require ongoing innovation in clean power technology, but also really dramatic transformations of the political processes behind them. No one country can do it alone. You can see how this conversation around re-globalization is already going to have much further implications than just the supply chains themselves that we're talking about. But before we move on, how about computer chips? Same story? Yes. So first off, semiconductor manufacturing or computer chip manufacturing is a hugely capital intensive and extremely delicate manufacturing process. Pair this with the structure of the semiconductor market, which is one where monopolies are prevalent in specific market fragments. Oh, I'm looking forward to digging into that as well. All right. Last one, Mike, our thesis on how financing needs will evolve. What does it look like? We discussed a fair amount this year about how we don't think we're staring down the end of the dollar. Julia noted innovation required to cope with the energy transition, and the same applies to long-term currency dominance. We are less worried about geopolitical shifts in determining the future of the dollar, and more so thinking about potential innovations that could disrupt financing more broadly. All right, there is so much good stuff in here and so many big picture ideas that investors can leverage. Let me summarize this before we dig in a bit more to those themes. Deglobalization is often looked to as the future path for global relationships with impacts on economic growth, investing, and daily life. But when it comes to perhaps the three most important parts of the global economy, the supply chains of energy, technology, and financing, deglobalization actually looks at odds with global economic structure. So instead, our thesis is one of re-globalization, where global relationships will shift and will be redefined by innovation, not just in the traditional sense, but also in trade, in geopolitics, and specific areas of cooperation. A re-globalized world might not look like the more overtly hostile future that some see under the deglobalization scenario, but countries could still have to dramatically differentiate their economic and financial relationships under the surface. So with that, let's spend a bit more time on each one of these themes. Julia, let's start with energy. You say no one country can do it alone. What's your biggest single reason why you think that's true? It really comes down to resources, Lauren. We know that there aren't enough of them generally. But what's less broadly understood is the stunning mineral and metal intensity of a green transition with the current technology that we presently have. And that's a big caveat. Raw materials access to accomplish any level of an energy independence or green transition with or without nuclear power faces a few issues. First, the overwhelming majority of critical metals and minerals are processed in and by China. Second, most critical minerals used for renewables, nuclear power, electric vehicle infrastructure, they're mined in a small number of countries that often have governance and development constraints. And then third, we have an extremely limited recycling capacity to try to get more use out of what's already being extracted. You emphasized in your answer there how this is the case given the technology that we have today. So what's the role of innovation here? Might that actually look different as the world evolves? 
Yeah, so the good news about innovation is that innovation by necessity in times of war, in times of crisis, it's got an amazing track record. It's given us everything from duct tape to penicillin. And in a way, the raw materials constraints surrounding an energy transition or energy independence might be a blessing in disguise because it will force innovation if history is anything to go by. Hopefully, this innovation will not just be in clean power, but also in things like battery storage, grid technology, recycling, and then, of course, the political process that needs to facilitate the international cooperation on this topics, because we will need to keep cooperating. All right. That was a quick but very powerful look at the energy supply chain. And I hope that our listeners are picking up on how some of the investable ideas or themes here have not only to do with the trend itself, but also with innovation and the infrastructure that will help make these trends possible, especially with so much global focus on them today. Our listeners will be able to read our upcoming flagship megatrends piece here in the next couple of weeks. All right, Mike, let's get you in here and talk about the future of global finance. Well, I'm not sure I can do that whole subject justice in this amount of time, but let's talk about what could unseat the dollar. All right, let's do it. There's been a lot of focus on geopolitical movements that seem to lessen U.S. and dollar influence. What do you have to say? So we think these fears are overblown. There's a two-pronged argument here. First is how we'll know the dollar is declining in influence, and it's about sanctions rather than China gaining political power. And then there's what could unseat the dollar. I'm not worried about the Chinese renminbi. I think blockchain or another innovation poses a more realistic threat. Why do you say that sanctions are your preferred bellwether for dollar influence? What's the connection there? Because sanctions force countries to pick a side. When people think about countries going around sanctions, they would probably think about the rogue actor countries like Russia and Iran. But there's a really important example that shows even U.S. allies have to do this. In 2019, after Iran lost access to the global payment messaging system SWIFT due to sanctions, it was France, Germany, and the United Kingdom who established an alternative system called INSTEX. They did this so they could still provide their existing humanitarian aid to Iran, but it goes to show the more the U.S. uses sanctions as a punitive financial measure, the more systems are likely to pop up, like China's SIPs, another SWIFT competitor, that allow countries to get around these sanctions. I hear you there. It suggests that countries don't necessarily share 100% of their financial priorities with the U.S., and they've made some meaningful decisions to reflect that. Exactly. Seeing some pushback on dollar dominance is one thing, but you say that it's more innovation that could actually unseat it? Yeah. Over the long term, the dominant currencies have included the Venetian Ducat, the Spanish dollar, and the British pound. Many analysts look to wars to mark the end of these eras of dominance, the Crusade, Spanish colonialism, the Napoleonic Wars, and then World War I and World War II to explain the rise of the dollar. These are true, but behind the curtain of both the currency shifts and the conflicts are major innovations. The gold standard, mining, steamships, and the Federal Reserve System, to name a few, help support the rise of the U.S. dollar. Okay, so then if the dollar were to be replaced one day, that replacement could be based on block chain technology or even AI, artificial intelligence? Yes. Or if a country comes up with another renewable or clean energy power source, for instance, their currency could rise to the top. 
Got it. So another way that another currency could rise to the top is by that country becoming more economically influential over time. That's fascinating. But let's finish up with our third theme, getting a lot of attention these days, which is technology. We're not talking about artificial intelligence specifically today, that'll come later, but semiconductors, the chips that power artificial intelligence, among other things, are really important to this story. Yes, semiconductors are a piece of critical infrastructure that I think is only more recently being fully appreciated in terms of their importance. And the semi-supply chain, the semiconductor supply chain, is a tangled web of monopolies. Taiwan is the dominant player, manufacturing over 50% of all chips in the world and 90% of all advanced processing chips. Those are what powers AI. Those are what are called logic chips, the processors. Then there's the self-explanatory memory chips in which Korea completely dominates. There's a very broad ecosystem around the various types of chips, including design, where the U.S. is a leader, and then testing and assembly at the end of the supply chain, and that's where China leads. Just hearing that makes it difficult to imagine how calls for countries to bring all of their technology capacity in-house seem a little... Impractical to the point of impossible? Yes, exactly. Okay, then it's clear how we don't see a deglobalized technology relationship being particularly possible, despite all the calls for a decoupling between the U.S. and China. But the U.S. has essentially already cut China off from the use of its technology. So how do you see that playing out? Frankly, I see that having to unwind somewhat. Namely, I would expect a reshuffling of tech trade relationships across all countries. And we've called for innovation at various other points in this discussion, but I want to make it clear that's not what we're expecting here for the tech sector. The semiconductor industry already innovates at a breathtaking pace, which is outlined in what's called Moore's Law. And this law posits that microchip processing capacity will increase exponentially. So we don't need a more impressive tech industry. What we could potentially be seeing as we're investors considering this investment landscape would be a reimagined geopolitical approach, one that understands how codependent the supply chain is, even between the U.S. and China. We also might be seeing more impulses toward understanding that cornering one portion of this market on a countrywide basis doesn't separate a country from all of these tech interlinkages. All right. As you can tell, our listeners, this is only just scratching the surface of how big and interesting and applicable this global megatrend around deglobalization or re-globalization may be. Keep an eye at NewYorkLifeInvestments.com. Click the Insights tab for the Holistic Report. That brings us to our Portfolio Pause, a segment of the program where we share an investment idea. And we have a lot of ideas on how investors can consider positioning for these very long-term themes. The first is to consider how these changes will be implemented in the future. With innovation and the reworking of supply chains come higher costs. With higher costs usually come debt and inflation. The question of the productivity of these investments becomes critical because more productive investments might mean higher interest rates, but also could mean higher economic growth. Considering the quality issuers that can maintain a productive investment over time from governments to companies is important to consider. Second, consider your portfolio construction approach. Annual assumptions testing and scanning of the investment landscape can help investors identify timely opportunities, even though the framework is long-term. Considering sector and thematic allocations can help investors harness the impact of a broader trend on their specific area of interest. 
And finally, staying diversified can not only help investors cope with trends that create both winners and losers, but it can also help investors to gain access to the less obvious beneficiaries of these themes. Consider not just thinking about how you could implement new changes, but also the suppliers and the infrastructure fueling new investment. And with that, thank you both so much again for joining me. Thanks, Lauren. Thanks, Lauren. For our listeners, once again, you'll be able to read this full piece of research at newyorklifeinvestments.com backslash insights. Coming up next, we'll get even more specific about how this megatrend of re-globalization can be applied to investor portfolios with a special guest. But that's it for today. We'll be back next week for more Market Matters. In the meantime, please remember to give us a like, follow, or review wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have a question or topic of interest, reach out to us on LinkedIn. Once again, you can follow our views at newyorklifeinvestments.com backslash insights. Until then, I'm Lauren Goodwin. See you next time. Our podcast is produced by Milo Benamax and our music was composed by the fabulous Zach Young. I will now read our disclosures from compliance. Past performance is no guarantee of future results, which may vary. All investments are subject to market risk and will fluctuate in value. This material represents an assessment of the market environment at a specific date, is subject to change, and is not intended to be a forecast of future events or a guarantee of future results. This information should not be relied upon by the reader as research or investment advice regarding the funds or any issue or security in particular. The strategies discussed are strictly for illustrative and educational purposes and are not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or adopt any investment strategy. There's no guarantee that any strategies discussed will be effective. This material contains general information only and does not take into account an individual's financial circumstances. This information should not be relied upon as a primary basis for an investment decision. Rather, an assessment should be made as to whether the information is appropriate in individual circumstances and consideration should be given to talking to a financial advisor before making an investment decision. New York Life Investments is both a service mark and the common trade name of certain investment advisors affiliated with New York Life Insurance Company. Securities are distributed by Nye Life Distributors, LLC, 30 Hudson Street, Jersey City, New Jersey, 07302, a wholly owned subsidiary of New York Life Insurance Company. Nye Life Distributors, LLC is a member of FINRA SIPC.